Welcome to Commercial Real Estate Investing from A to Z, the ultimate guide for real estate investors. I'm your host, Steph Boldrini. We cover everything you need to know from finding and analyzing properties to financing and managing your investments. Tune in every week for experts' insights and tips so you can make your commercial real estate dreams come true. And in today's episode, we are sharing Dr. Doug Duncan's presentation. He is the executive vice president and chief economist at Fannie Mae. He came to give a presentation to our audience here in Silicon Valley. Just a couple of weeks ago, we had almost 200 people show up. Dr. Duncan is just a fantastic human being. He is one of the very few, if not the only one, person in DC that actually cares about the people. Maybe because he actually doesn't live in DC and he actually lives in Florida, (laughs) but he is a fantastic human being. He is for the people. We are going to break this down into two episodes because the presentation was almost an hour long. I will put the video to the entire presentation under show notes. And I will also put the link to the slides that he presented under show notes. The room acoustics were not that great, but you will be able to understand his message. And at the beginning of the presentation, he's actually talking about the Lawrence R. Klein Award, which is an award that he received for most accurate forecaster over the past five years, which is mind blowing. He was also named Bloomberg's and Business Week's one of the 50 most powerful people in real estate. And he has obviously a proven track record of accurately predicting major economic events, including the 2008 crisis. One of my key takeaways here was towards the end when he said, if you really want to know what an economist thinks, ask him where he is putting his money. Here we go. I guess the Lawrence Klein Award, I would attribute that to our staff getting out onto the street and talking to people, not just running models in the office, but it's not just me that goes out and speak. I have three vice presidents, all of who probably speak 20 to 30 times a year in different places. And I have some more uh, staff under that that also do that. Because I just feel the economy is a dynamic organism and every single action that you take impacts the direction and the intensity of economic activity. So if you're not out there trying to understand what people are doing, you're probably seeing the bigger themes. So I really enjoyed this. Uh, I told Tom and I were talking about Q&A, and I said, I always issue a warning. I said, if you ask me a question I don't like, remember, I'm from Washington, so I'll answer a different one. (laughs) So each year, I spend time in December and January thinking about what is likely to be the underlying theme for economic activity over the succeeding year. The reason I do that is it's a check against ourselves. It's actually the team does this. Um, I want to uh, know whether at the outset of any time period we had a good feel for the major impulses that were underway 
in academic and in particular housing, because that's the business Fannie Mae is in. Um, and then we use that to test ourselves across the course of the year. What did we miss, if anything? Were we just lucky? Did we just make a, a lucky guess? But it, it's also something that we, we can hang the discussion on when we're talking with uh, people out speaking. So uh, interesting little factoid, uh, the optimal number of words for that theme is less than seven. People will remember it if it's less than seven words, if it's more than seven, uh, it gets lost. So this is for awaiting improvements in affordability. It's not just affordability in housing. The, the rise in interest rates means affordability across the economy, credit affordability, that, that kind of issue. So it's intended not just to focus on the housing, though it certainly does apply to housing. So, so far, I would say I would give us a B at best because housing, we, even though we started the bandwagon on the fact, the fundamental fact in housing would be a shortage of supply back in 2014, even we underestimated the mismatch between uh, supply and demand when interest rates made a significant rise. So what Stephanie was saying uh, about the supply issue is still very true and still intense uh, competition uh, really all across the country. Though I'll show you a map in a little bit that shows red or falling prices largely dominate the West and green or rising prices dominate the East and Midwest. So it is, it, uh, it's as it's always true, all real estate is local, and you have to understand local markets uh, to, to build the big picture. So let me, okay. So uh, this is a, a quick run through of a set of things that we watch. So obviously, we're, as uh, is the Fed and everyone else, focused on the question of inflation, which rose much faster and much farther than was uh, anticipated. We had anticipated rise. We did not anticipate how far it went. But we did say when the uh, chairman of the Fed noted that from his perspective, this was transitory. So I looked up the word transitory. It says not permanent. Well, by those terms, life is transitory. <laughs> so, we don't believe that. We do believe there are some bottlenecks in supply chains because of the risk uh, of COVID. And so the uh, institutions are going to have to adjust their practices to ensure the safety of their workforce. But once that's in place, some of those bottlenecks will go away. But we believe there's something more fundamental than that. We believe that geopolitical change is going to lead to the restructuring of supply chains, and that's time-consuming and expensive. So the Fed is going to be leaning against the restructuring of supply chains, and you're seeing the stories emerge now, right? About how difficult it is to re-platform re, uh, re your company from one country to another country, to strike uh, relationships, uh, shipping and uh, other kinds of uh, transportation relationships, Restructuring those things, time-consuming and home expensive. So we felt like that we got ahead of that one uh, uh, before uh, some others did. So uh, that's going to be a contributor uh, to the underlying rate of inflation for some time. Um, 
Obviously, the Fed has been very focused on the labor, the labor market. So uh, a couple of things to note uh, in the upper right-hand corner, we're back to, for working age, uh, or for prime working age, 25 to 54-year-olds, we've gotten back everything that we had prior to the pandemic, and we're actually back to the participation rate that's uh, around the year 2002 or thereabouts. But if you go back further, the force participation was higher than that. And I'll show you another employment chart in, in just a minute. Obviously, the Fed has raised Fed, uh, the Fed funds target pretty substantially. On this, uh, our average hourly earnings, it looks like in 2022 that there was a uh, burst of uh, growth in incomes. That's a little misleading in that it's a summary of those people that do have jobs and service sector employees earn less money and there was a slower return of service sector workers to the market which meant that average rose uh, because of the truncation of the participation of the service sector workers so it's a little bit misleading in that regard <clears throat> so the millennials are here we were talking uh somebody and i were talking earlier about the stories that had emerged um, back in uh, 2010 or thereabouts, that the millennials had learned the lesson of the foreclosure crisis and they wanted 300 square foot apartments with amenities because their parents all had hundred foreclosures. We did that make sense to us. So we started a survey, which we continue to this day once a month to survey a thousand household structure to represent this population. June of 2010, the first survey, 92% of millennials said we eventually put on. So how did we square that circle? That recovery was the most urban recovery uh, in the US since World War II. So if you're gonna have a job, you're gonna be working and living in a central city where they don't build single family detached houses, they build apartment buildings with square, 300 square feet and amenities. What they were really saying is we want a job. When we have a job, then we can uh, build a credit record and then eventually we're gonna get partnered up, as my mother would say, uh, benefit from clergy uh, and form a household and then we'll buy a house. And that's exactly what they've done. You can see they are not yet at peak median home buying age. That's still a couple of years off. They started driving the demand curve in 2015. And by that time, the builders were already behind the curve and we're still living with that supply uh, shortage today. And that will continue for some time. <clears throat> Um, on the lower right-hand corner, to, uh, I mentioned I would talk about another chart on employment. The, the top line is uh, men's uh, workforce participation, which you can see has been declining since, well, this data goes all the way back to 1960. It's been declining across that whole time period. It was disguised until the year 2000 by the rise of women's participation in uh, the workforce, which peaked in 2000, once that peak, it revealed the fact that men's labor force participation had been declining. To me, that is a societal, <clears throat> excuse me, a societal problem uh, that, uh, that is as of yet unaddressed. Um, <clears throat> and you can see perhaps 
some evidence of what's happening in the upper right-hand corner uh, as we're near all-time peaks of adult children uh, living at home with their parents. Part of that is the housing supply problem, uh, is there's not a place to live in coal. And by the way, apartment buildings, there's also still uh, uh, a significant supply issues in the, in the apartment space. <clears throat> Um, so here's uh, a, a few of items uh, on the, uh, to, to paint some other characteristics of the housing market uh, supply issue. So in the upper left-hand corner, uh, it's, uh, it's a look at the housing stock uh, available per household. And what you see is it's uh, close to its lowest point um, uh, over the last uh, almost four years. So that's, a, that's a, another way of looking at that supply problem. Below that, you can see existing homes uh, and uh, new homes. The new home number looks like a big rise in available new homes. It actually includes lots that are available for sale for development. So it's not just the uh, finished houses uh, available for sale. Uh, on the on the existing home thing, my favorite statistic for the last couple of years was I think it was two years ago. There were about one million realtors and about one million existing homes for sale. So each realtor was selling. <laughs> uh, so upper right hand side, the, the housing. There is a typical relationship between housing and the business cycle. As the Fed tightens on anticipation of the rise of inflation, or in response to the rise of inflation, interest rates go up. Housing is very interesting since business. The first thing that happens is uh, residential fixed investment, which is economic jargon for building, starts to slow. Then the next thing that happens is new home sales start to slow because builders are building less, and so there are less being sold. Then existing home sales start to slow. And then when the recession is full force and the Fed eases, rates come down, construction starts to pick up, uh, new home sales start to pick up, and existing home sales start to pick up. So there's a predictable relationship um, uh, Typically, that was not the case in 19 or in uh, 2007 to 2009, because in that instance, the center of the financial problem was the uh, decline in uh, underwriting standards in real estate itself. So it, it was the sort of the core of the of the, of the issue. Um, so you can see in the upper right hand side that permits for single family construction have fallen. That's the response to the Fed raising interest rates. And I, I think, uh, as Stephanie said, they basically doubled interest rates in the course of a year. Uh, so you see, you saw that response. In the lower right hand corner is the Fannie House price. Uh, we forecast prices on a quarterly basis. The primary uh, application of that within the company is establishing the allowance, uh, allowance for losses. Uh, and so it's probably the most important variable uh, for us uh, from a management perspective. But our view is the calibration of it on a frequency more than a quarter has a lot of volatility to it. So 
uh, we uh, have forecasted in alignment with our public uh, statements, uh, our public filings. So as you can see, a uh, big drop off. Now, I, as I said earlier, I was giving myself at best a B on our forecast in part because our, uh, if you went back six months and looked at our forecast, you would have seen that our view was over a two year time period, peak to drop, we thought rates or prices would fall about 10% nationally. Now, with what we've seen in the last few months, we've been half that, probably about 5%, which suggests that the supply shortage is a lot more powerful than you would have thought, given how fast house prices appreciated in two prior years. Uh, tremendous appreciation in some markets, 40% or more over a two year time period. And even those markets are coming down a bit, but nothing, uh, nothing close to 40%. <clears throat> now, part of that is simply because transactions are not taking place. Because, and I'll show you a chart in a little bit, um, over 90% of all outstanding mortgages today are at least 100 basis points below the current target interest rate. Something like 78 or 79% are 200 basis points or more below the current uh, interest rate. Those ones are going nowhere. So it, it actually has impacts in several places. One of them is uh, accentuating supply storage um, because uh, people are locked in, they're, they're not willing to give up uh, those mortgages. It's also slowing the pace at which mortgages prepay in the Fed's portfolio. The Fed is the single largest holder of mortgage-backed securities in the world. Um, banks and uh, other depository institutions as a group are larger. I don't know if they're about 29%, the Fed is 20%, 21% of all outstanding mortgage-backed securities. They're going out of that space, and that, in our view, is part of why those are staying higher than you might have thought. So there's a, a, a map of selected uh, markets, house prices, where we think we can validate. It gives you an idea of uh, why real estate values are changing uh, in different ways regionally. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Okay, upper left hand corner. This, um, we ended 40 years of declining nominal interest rates. So for about six or eight years, I had been pointing out to bank uh, leadership teams when I spoke to them that they now have no one in senior leadership who had ever managed a bank in a rising rate environment. And they would they might want to think carefully about even some of them may have had directors on their board of directors that were more senior and had been through some of that. This is over 40 years of declining and then flat near zero interest rates. So business models and mental frameworks had aligned to uh, to build that reality. And it suggested it might be difficult uh, to uh, to recognize risks that exist in a rising framework. Of course, 
Uh, there were a couple of banks not far from here uh, that had a little bit of difficulty. <laughs> so there's a couple of things to think about. The most interesting fact of the failure of Silicon Valley Bank was that $42 billion left that institution in six hours. $42 billion in six hours left that. So there's probably a reason to think more deeply about how, how technology has changed speed in the actions that we take and whether or not our, uh, the institutional structures we have in place are, are resilient to, that, uh, to the enabling of rapid changes like that. Now, there's a bunch of interesting things uh, about, uh, about that. Um, <clears throat> it shows you that economists uh, have no feelings, right? <laughs> Just think things of bank failure. How interesting. Um, um, so, what, what did we learn? Uh, one is that technology has changed behaviors. And, and what we thought of as a bank run in the past is not what bank run will be in the future. Because people can, with a few strokes of their uh, cell phone, relocate their financials. Uh, to another institution. And that leaves very little time for the affected institution to respond to that. And so bank regulation is probably gonna, going to uh, have some review. Second thing is we proved there's a class of banks in the United States that are too big to fail. There's about a dozen of them. And the hot money from Silicon Valley Bank flowed to most of, most of it flowed to those institutions which had nothing to do with yield, it had to do with safety. Because they're paying, what, 25 basis points of interest or something like that in accounts. So it wasn't about yield, it was about safety. So that was one thing we learned. The second thing that we learned is those too big to fail institutions do not do well in local markets. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about the, the regional banks and uh, uh, commercial real estate, particularly Austin. Something like 75 or 80% of that credit lies in the portfolios of the small and uh, mid sized regional banks, which means that the big banks don't have it. That's important because those institutions are more, are, are key to the health of those local, uh, smaller, and regional markets. We'll see, There's, there is already some talk of change of capital requirements, but uh, imposing additional capital requirements on those mid-sized firms will uh, probably aggravate the disadvantage that they already have in terms of the cost of capital. If you're too big to fail, the risk premium that you have to pay uh, for people to do business with your bank is lower, right? So, um, We'll see where regulation goes on that, but a couple of very important things, I think. Okay, so I mentioned the Fed and its portfolio. Right now, the spreads in the mortgage space are historically wide. So if you look at the spread between the 10-year trade and the current coupon yield on a mortgage-backed security, it's far wider than it's normal. Part of that is risk. If the market sees a potential recession coming on, 
in which case the frequencies would uh, if unemployment grows, you would see the frequencies rise, representing an increased risk. So the market to some degree is pricing in that risk. But it's also, I think, pricing in the question of when the Fed exits, who replaces them? And that's uh, kind of an unknown. If you go back in history, it was the thrift industry that held, they were by definition designed to hold mortgage credit. Then when the thrift industry died, it went to the GSE portfolios. And when the GSEs got in trouble and their portfolios were constrained, then it shifted to the Fed. So the question is, to whom does it go next? That's an open question. I don't really answer that. People will say private investors. Well, okay, that may be. What yields will they require? And how will they behave over the business cycle? And how will that impact volatility in the real estate space? So I think that's an open question. We're working on it from a research perspective and talking to a lot of people who have ideas on that. I don't, I don't know the answer yet. I don't think that by and large it's going to be foreign uh, investor, partly because of the geopolitical issues that I was talking about earlier. We will continue with the second half of his presentation in the next episode. All of the links are under show notes for the entire video presentation and also for the actual slides. And I will see you next time.